big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patron, Peyton. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like Peyton and get access to our notes, outtakes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now enjoy part four of our discussion of the 2008 miniseries of Sense and Sensibility with our guests Zoe and Kelsey of Tea and Strumpets. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the second part of the sometimes two-part, sometimes three-part 2008 Sense and Sensibility by our boy Andrew Davies. And we are joined with some guests today. We have Zoe and Kelsey from Tea and Strumpets, the podcast. Hi, Zoe and Kelsey. Hi there. Hello. Thanks for having us. We're so excited that you're here. Do you guys want to tell the people a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a podcast devoted to Regency romance. So I imagine your listeners probably already know what that is. I don't really need to, <laughs> to get into that. Uh, but Regency romance novels. So, but we do, you know, Victorian and Georgian as well. We'll like spread out a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, so we we talk about books and we talk to authors in the genre as well. I mean, that is a fantastic uh, concept for a podcast. I actually went ahead and listened to a couple of your guys' episodes and I was very taken with it as someone who enjoys the Jane Austen Regency era novels that were written in the time period, but also enjoys the slightly more like decadent um, and fantasized world that contemporary authors have come up with for this time period. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I, I think what's really fun about it is, you know, Jane Austen really started that genre and there's so much homage paid to her in the contemporary authors who write in that era. I can't tell you uh, how many times actually in a book for an author that we just read, we read the arc and in it, there's a scene where she's like, you've read Pride and Prejudice. He's like, I have sisters. Of course I've read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> it's so funny. I was just thinking that I was like, oh my gosh, in the last book we read, they actually referenced it. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You know who loves Regency romance novels is my grandma. Um, <laughs> when I started this podcast, she emailed me and she was like, oh my gosh, if you are reading Jane Austen, there are all of these books that you can get on Amazon.com that are <laughs> Regency romance novels. And it's all I've been reading since 2016. Like she has not picked up another kind of book. Only Regency romance. Go, Grandma, go. Well, uh, <laughs> a little happily ever after has been needed since 2016. So That's I feel exactly. I feel I feel what your grandma's feeling. <laughs> yeah, she was like, I can't deal with this real life anymore. I'm going to the Regency era. <laughs> I was just telling Zoe I needed to read a book that like wasn't a Regency romance novel. 
or a romance novel in general, but I'm just like, but when I pick up a book, I just want a happily ever after and some fun kooky antics along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I read a lot of like uh, really intense, depressing nonfiction in my off time. And every time I turn back to Regency era literature, whether it be Jane Austen or uh, a more recent example would be like the T Rose. I'm always like, oh, you know what? You know what? This is better. (laughs) This feels like a warm blanket. Mm -hmm. So on the note of Jane Austen, we start off with all of our guests talking about their experience with Jane Austen novels themselves and the Jane Austen canon, as it were, in the 21st and late 20th century. So the first question is, what is your relationship to Jane Austen? Well, Zoe and I have talked about this (laughs) at the beginning, and we are probably like, we're fans of Jane Austen in concept, but in actual like reading, we're not so great. <laughs> I I try to read classic literature and like every time I like really into it and then like something happens and I don't pick up the book for a few days and then a few days turns into a few weeks and then a few weeks turns into a few months and then it's a few years later and I still haven't finished the book. But I have read multiple versions of Pride and Prejudice. Um, I think the one that I was able to get through start to finish was actually a very beautifully illustrated graphic novel of Pride and Prejudice. Um, And I that was gorgeous because it was all the dialogue directly taken from the book. And of course, it was just done in a graphic novel format. So it was beautiful. And then, of course, I read Emma in high school and I've watched Sense and Sensibility now multiple versions of it. (laughs) So that's kind of where I'm at with my Jane Austen. We are not, um, you must read the original book snobs (laughs) with fandom. You can enjoy the movies and the canon in other ways uh, other than the original books. Um, That is my take personally on Jane Austen. She's for everyone. (laughs) And I will add for for my relationship with Jane Austen is that I have even less (laughs) than Kelsey. I think that my first introduction to Jane Austen was somehow Sense and Sensibility, the 1995 movie made its way onto my TV screen. And I was in love. Like immediately, I just like, I fell in love. It was like the most, it became one of my favorite movies of all time. And I just like, I loved everything about it. So then of course I was like, well, I'll pick up the book. And this was probably 10 years ago because I I had never, at that point I had, first of all, never read historical romance, which is I, a little different, but I'd never read that. Um, I was just a fantasy reader. That was really all that I read. And so, so I pick up Sense and Sensibility and I think I had the same kind of issue where I'm out of, co- I'm out of high school. I'm out of college. I haven't read classic literature and it just like, it just didn't quite draw me in the way that my fantasy novels did. <laughs> so I was thinking that I read about two thirds of Sense and Sensibility, but today I noticed that that book is still on my bookshelf and it looks like I got to page 149 <laughs> because there's a bookmark in it. Out of curiosity, where were you in it? Uh, it looks like Colonel Brandon is saying that um, he, he's telling Eleanor about his uh, ward and her pregnancy. That's what it looks like. Um, has been such an unhappy resemblance between the fate of mother and daughter. And I so perfectly I have discharged my trust. As soon as she recovered from her lying in, I found her near delivery. I removed her in the child. Yeah. So that must be, that must be that point. So 
But what I remember is as I was reading the book, I was enchanted. You know, I was I was immediately transported to the scenes that I had seen in the movie. And it was one of those kind of like Princess Bride moments where I felt like the book and the movie were like so kind of simpatico, like they both were giving me the same thing and and they they made me happy in different ways. Um, but uh, that was about 10, 12 years ago and I haven't picked it up since. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say that's kind of what I've told Molly while we've been covering Sense and Sensibility, because when we covered Pride and Prejudice, the BBC edition of Pride and Prejudice is basically word for word the book, whereas the more famous version of Sense and Sensibility is this movie uh, with Emma Thompson that kind of puts its own little spin on the story, but creates something sort of masterful on its own. Yeah. Well, to be fair, my favorite version of Emma is still Clueless. So <laughs> <laughs> so Molly has seen Clueless, but doesn't remember any of it. But she does now know it's based on Emma. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great when you like, I mean, the most recent Emma came out, but I really love the, um, her name is escaping me. Gwen. Gwyneth Paltrow? Gwyneth Paltrow. There you go. Thank oh my gosh, you. I was right? Yeah, it's the Gwyneth Paltrow version of Emma. I can never get them straight in my head. Like, who is she? Yeah, so there's the most recent Emma that came out, which was beautiful, like, costume-wise and, like, cinematography-wise. is gorgeous. But then I really think that the one with Gwyneth Paltrow was just very classic to the book. But then, again, just Clueless is great. And you can watch it, and then you read Emma, and you're like, oh, it really is, like, the same thing. I can't wait. It's one of the only adaptations of a Jane Austen that's like pretty on point and set in the modern day. Yeah. So on that, I think we just had uh, Kelsey answer this question. But the next question is, what is your favorite piece of Jane Austen content? And do we specify it does not have to be a book? It can be an adaptation a filmed version. <laughs> so I'm guessing Clueless for you. I mean, Clueless is great because the best thing about Clueless is you have zero idea. It's based on Emma the first time you watch it. Like the first, I didn't know. And then all of a sudden we're discussing Emma in high school and they're like, Clueless. And I was like, what? <laughs> no way. And then now every time I watch it, I am now transported to Emma, the story. And I'm like, it's totally 100% the same thing like it's amazing and it's just such a good modern day take of it and they truly did something that felt very original while still maintaining like the essence of the characters and the storyline from the source material I totally agree with that and without spoiling anything for Molly because Emma is in fact our next book um, I will say that something about Emma as a novel makes it much better fodder to adapt to a very contemporary mm -hmm. script yeah. than some of the other stuff we've been reading. And I'll get to that when we get to Emma and when we get to Clueless, because Clueless is like the one modern adaptation we're going to put in our like general roster for Yay. watching. Perfect. Yes. Yes. Well, my favorite piece I've sort of already said as well, which is the 1995 Sense and Sensibility. Which I, is amazing. I love that movie too. I just love it. It's I mean, I think top three movies for me in general um, definitely also include The Princess Bride. And I think that those movies are very, they have a very similar feel in a lot of ways. Um, and so I just, I love it. I love the cast. I love the everything. <laughs> I really do. So um, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because we're going to talk all about Sense and Sensibility today. So absolutely. But I'm glad we brought you on for a different adaptation. Yeah. 
that is similar to the one you like so much. Yes. Um, so we have two more questions. Um, one is, which Austin character do you relate to the most? So for me, it's it's really interesting. Um, I, and I should say, I, I have also seen Pride and Prejudice. So it's like, you know, I've seen a couple of these, you know, a, a couple more uh, Austin works than just the, the ones that I've mentioned. Um, but my... I think it's really interesting because I think that all three of the Dashwood sisters are very much me at those stages of my life. Like Meg is totally me as a kid. Like I was very much like talking all the time and like very creative and like the one in the tree house or playing pretend or, you know, hidden in the library. Like that's, that's very me as a kid. And then I think like teenage me was very much the romantic, like very much like I am going to find my happily ever after why isn't there magic in the world? Like, you know, like I was very, very much like kind of head in the clouds. And then, you know, not to bring it down too much, but I had like a a family tragedy happen. And I think that that really did kind of ground me a little bit and turn me into the more practical Eleanor. (laughs) So I think like I so relate to all three of them because I see myself in all of them. But I would say that me nowadays is very much like Eleanor. Like, you know, I'm just the one who has to make the practical decisions and who always thinks kind of that way first. Um, But maybe with a dash of Marianne's emotion in there too. (laughs) It's very relatable content. (laughs) Kelsey, do you have an answer? Yes, I do have an answer. And I just needed to look up the name because I am horrendous at remembering anybody's names ever. (laughs) And so I'm going to go with uh, Harriet Smith, uh, the the friend of Emma, who is subject to all her matchmaking. And I think the reason why I identify with her is, you know, very much like – uh, she's just a genuinely kind person, like, and she's like really truly like Emma does really truly see her as a friend. But at the same time, too, it's like she has the fallacy of like wanting to be in the in crowd, absorbing too much of the in crowd, and then like wanting to kind of find herself again. And like, so I feel like that's just been a story of my life and like learning to just like me and be okay with like where I am in life and loving that. And okay. So there you go. I'm going to identify with that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I think you're the first guest we've had on who says she relates to Harriet Smith. And I love Harriet. So I'm very excited. <laughs> by that answer. And then last question I have for you guys. And there is no rules to this one. But what is your hottest Austin take? Um, okay, so I'm going to answer this one honestly. Uh, I'm 34 years old. I don't feel like I'm that old, but I I had to like Google what a hot take was. <laughs> <laughs> so and then I was like, I I was like, Emma, is it what I think it is? Like, I know this is so silly, but like, I really wasn't quite sure what, you know, what a hot take was. So I um, have a very boring answer, which is I just don't think that I actually have that much. I have enough Austin knowledge to have a hot take uh, on it yet. So I have nothing to to throw in the hot take bowl. I'm sorry. We'll see if anything comes up over the course of the episode. Yes. Can you tell me what a hot take is? (laughs) For our listeners, obviously, everybody on this call knows what a hot take is. Yeah, totally. So just for our listeners who might not know, a hot take is sort of 
an unpopular opinion that you might have oh. about Jane Austen works. So, for example, one of my hot takes about Jane Austen is that Lydia is kind of a misunderstood tragic hero. Oh, um, that is a, like that because is very interesting. <laughs> she's a girl who's like she's very selfish for sure but she also is a girl who's just in touch with her own sexuality in an era when that was not okay and she gets really punished for it so I think it's actually a very tragic story (laughs) so that would be an Austin hot take Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like my Austin hot take is more of a hot take for myself because of what I've decided for myself about my personality but um, I like David Morrissey's Colonel Brandon better than Alan Rickman's Colonel Brandon. And that's my hot take. And Becca hates me. now. That's also your problematic characteristic. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. And listen, Alan Rickman as Colonel Brandon was my phone background for months. And then I saw this movie and I was like, I just I don't know anymore. I don't know who I am. So that's my hot take. <laughs> I hope we're still able to talk to each other at the end of this call. Oh, no. Honestly, we've been friends for what at this point eight years, and this might end our friendship. I know, I know, I know. But I I have to stick to my guns. I said it on the air last time, so I was like, "Well, I can't take it back now." Okay, so I what I have like an hour and a half to maybe try to convince you otherwise. Is that yes? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Totally open to any mind changing that may occur. Yes, and um, Alan Rickman worshiping is sort of part of the vibe of this podcast. So feel free to go as in on that as you want. All right, that sounds good. Okay. I know what my hot take is. I know what my hot take is. I know what it is. I think Jane Austen is better watched than read. (laughs) That is a hot take, but I think a fair one because it is more palatable to the contemporary eye. Mm -hmm. And like also too, just I'm not going to lie, like there's just Jane Austen as well as plenty of other authors in that time because, you know, any work that was serialized or anything like that. There's just sometimes they're overly descriptive about things and yeah. <laughs> it's like get to the point and move on. And I think that's where I'm always lost is because like we get into like crazy descriptions that last pages and pages or it's like they're sitting in the parlor and nothing's happening. Like the story is not moving forward and yet we're here for like a chapter. And I'm like, why? You can also say J.R.L. Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, how do you guys feel about Lord of the Rings? Um, as someone who really has actually never watched or read any of it, like, uh... you don't gotta. That was one of my pandemic projects. And I can tell you, I, I ended up really enjoying the last book. But you can watch the movie. It took you a long time to get to the last book, though. Oh, it took me two years. I was like, <laughs> I finished Lord of the Rings like in 2022 and I started it like March 2020. <laughs> I had all of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit books read to me by my dad starting when I was about six. That's beautiful. But that's wonderful. So I know he skipped over some of the scary parts, um, but it like it's interesting because I've never picked them back up kind of for that reason <laughs> where I'm like, you know. Know, like I had this beautiful experience with something like why why spoil it with reality right no I 100% agree with that and I think too like I mean I might have seen part of one of the Lord of the Rings movies it just was like it's funny for as much as I love fantasy that was not a fantasy that triggered me in any interest I mean it's a much shorter read if you only read the scenes with women in it mm-hmm. so like you can get you can knock that out on a weekend <laughs> Although I did watch the movie about J.R. Tolkien, like the the movie about his life. What is what's that? I can't remember what it's called. 
because I'm terrible with names of anything. But there is a movie about his life and it's actually like quite interesting and quite good because he talks about how like his experience in World War One actually like led to his idea about um, the books and like creating the books and the story. Wow. Well, speaking of books and stories, I guess <laughs> we should jump in to the 2008 Sense and Sensibility. So we are talking today about the second part of the two-part miniseries. Sometimes it's three parts. If you are listening along with this, where we just left off was the end of the part one, which was Marianne sitting on the riverside with her scarf being sad that Willoughby has disappeared. So now... We get this like opening sequence with the theme song and the shells waving in the wind. And I liked that we got little flashes of what's to come and it like faded in on little scenes from what was about to happen. And I was like, that's not familiar to me. And then I realized that it was like things that happened in this episode. So a little treat. It's like when you get a new title sequence in a season of a TV show where they like cut a bunch of the episodes that are upcoming into the title sequence. I'm thinking of Friends, but Gilmore Girls did this, I think. Yeah. Gilmore Girls kept, but they kept a lot of the same stuff from season one all the way to season seven. Yeah, they did. But they kept some like, key scenes but then they like changed up a couple of them as well yeah yeah now I have a question for the book readers here Barton Cottage is it a seaside cottage in the book oh yes it is it is a seaside tale this is a seaside tale it takes place in Devonshire which is in the south of England and um we get some laughs from our British listeners on this a little bit but my understanding is that it is um a very mountainous region mm-hmm. that has a long coast of fishing towns. So my understanding of where the Dashwoods live is sort of like on a mountain cliff near-ish the sea. Got it. And so therefore this is a seaside tale and all the longing is part of the seashell, uh, sea waves, seaness of it all. Though potentially <laughs> not as seaside-y as this one makes it. I had a feeling that was something that they took from the book and put into this adaptation. So I just, I really did want to ask that. And I I asked the right people. (laughs) Because in the 1995, it's more of a lakeside tale, which I was, every time we were watching it and Becca was like, yeah, see, it's a seaside tale. I'm like, that's not the sea. (laughs) (laughs) It's wet. Because this was a refrain when we were reading the book. I was like, Molly, this is a seaside tale. It's a sister's (laughs) seaside tale where the sisters are by the sea. Yes. Um, so we get the waves crashing and Marianne looking out the window being sad and Eleanor in the middle of the night comes down to talk to her mother and get a glass of water and Mrs. Dashwood is writing a letter and Eleanor asks if she's writing to John and at first Mrs. Dashwood says yes and then she says no to tell you the truth I wanted to invite Edward because I'm surprised he hasn't come to see us yet and I in our last episode I couldn't think of the word for the face that Eleanor does so well. And I figured it out while I was watching this time. It's incredulous. She's incredulous <laughs> at everyone around her that they just like keep saying things. And she's like, what are you doing? And so she looks at her mother. Do you mean indignant or incredulous? No, incredulous. She cannot believe it. And she is she's shocked in disbelief kind of annoyed but kind of amused um incredulous that's the word that's such a good definition I love it <laughs> she's got that wide-eyed yeah yeah this 
actress for Eleanor does wide-eyed really good. Yes. In fact, sometimes I was like, was that a, are you actually, so your eyes supposed to be that big or is that just your eyes? Because every time they like close up on her face, her eyes are huge. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like you can see the whites around her irises all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was watching this with my boyfriend, Mike, and he just looks at the screen and goes, did they make her eyes wider in that shot in post? <laughs> she also gets like the red rimmed mm-hmm. really well, like. Her eyes will be totally normal, and then something will happen, and immediately they'll go red-rimmed. It's impressive. Eyeball acting. Yeah. Really impressive. So Eleanor says that if Edward doesn't come of his own accord, then it's for good reason, and she doesn't want her mom to embarrass him by, like, begging him to come. And she doesn't want him to come reluctantly or unwillingly. So Mrs. Dashwood then, like, puts the letter away and closes the box, and she does this little sassy shrug, like... Okay, whatever you say. I'm obsessed with her. So passive aggressive. I think that's just a highlight of all Regency romance, whether it's past or present, is mother needing to um, (laughs) stick her finger in the pie because it's not happening soon enough and, like, these kids need to get their act together. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be supportive, but also you need to get married. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then we go to the next day and Marianne and Eleanor are walking through the woods and Marianne is just reciting poetry that Willoughby has taught to her and it's gross. And Eleanor is like, maybe you wouldn't be so sad all the time if you stopped, you know, thinking about him all the time. And then she says, he is in me, Eleanor, to which I thought, well, he almost was. (laughs) (laughs) He would have liked to be for sure. Yes, that line was very intentionally put there to uh, Kelsey and Zoe. I don't know if you guys went ahead and watched the first episode of this oh, yeah. miniseries. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Also, when Willoughby came onto the screen, I was like, "Hey, he's from Mamma Mia." Yes, we said the same thing. We said the same thing. Except I was like, "No, he's Howard Stark." Oh, that's true. He is. He is. Wow. Both of those things went over my head. Um, <laughs> yeah. My my first impression of Willoughby was like. Oh, this guy gives me the major creep douche chills from moment one. I mean, he is a major creep douche. Yeah. And he needs some chill. So well, his name starts with W and I feel like Austin really liked her bad guys to start with W. Yes. A hundred percent. I will say, and we'll get to this later on, but I thought in part one, I was like, you know what? I can kind of like. I always have sympathized like a little bit with Willoughby. Like I've thought not like sympathized with him, but I've seen where he's coming from more so in the 1995. But I was like, oh, I can see what they're like attempting to do with his little puppy dog face or whatever. And then in this one, he was just so slimy and grody the whole time, like even more so than he is in the book. I had to give a definition of what the word rake was to my husband because Mm. my husband watched it with me and then we got more interest on Willoughby. And I was like, he's just a rake. He's a rake of the first order. And my husband's like, huh? What are you saying? (laughs) And I was like, a rake, a scoundrel. (laughs) And he's like, what? And I was like, seducer of women. That is a rake. And of little girls in this one. Yes. In our book episodes, I would look up words that I didn't understand often along those lines. And then I would put like a little glossary of terms and phrases that I had to look up in the the show notes (laughs) in case people were reading it for the first time and didn't understand Austin's language. (laughs) So speaking of him, Eleanor's like, maybe you shouldn't be thinking about him all the time. And then she's like, well, he's in me, blah, 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 blah. And then Margaret just like, 
is in a tree above them, and, as she always is. And she was like, oh, my gosh, there's someone coming. And it's a man on a horse. And Marianne is certain that it's Willoughby. She's like, I knew he would come. I knew it. And then Margaret's like, it's Edward. <laughs> I feel like all Margaret got to say was it's Edward. Like, yes. There were like, I wish I'd gone. I wish I'd counted from the beginning because I, I think she said it at least three times. Yeah. And didn't have very many lines in the second half anyway. Yeah. My mom texted me and went, what would they do without Margaret? She's always announcing when Edward's coming. (laughs) (laughs) She's the one who can see the riders from the distance. And she's like, it's Colonel Brandon coming to the house. (laughs) And it leads them to my favorite Austin trope uh, in the adaptations, which is the clean up the house before the suitor gets there. Oh my God. I love it. And they're all like sitting there like, Eleanor strips off her apron and then he arrives and they're all sitting perfectly in the parlor. It's perfect. Although this time they're just walking and they all turn and just start running and Margaret's like, wait for me, wait for me. And I did like this because in the book, I didn't understand how Marianne could do like such a 180 from being so sad that it wasn't Willoughby to being happy that it was Edward. And and Becca was like, well, like, she really cares about her sister. And I was like, yeah, but she was so upset a minute ago. But in this, she was like, okay, Edward is the only person that it could be that would make her not like angry that it wasn't Willoughby. I got it this time. <laughs> so they're walking with Edward and he tells them that he's been there for a fortnight. And he said he was visiting some old friends. And then they added from the book that he was not happy about visiting those friends. He was like, I was visiting some friends for my sins. And Eleanor is like, so it wasn't a good visit then? And he says, no, but that was my own fault um, for some reason or another. And I was like, I like that. They are hinting that he's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought that was an interesting addition to compared to, um, you know, at least what I know of, of from the other adaptation, because I felt like in here there hadn't yet been very much or any development to kind of their storyline in a long time. And so mm-hmm. this gave you a hint of like, something so that at least when like other pieces of the puzzle started to fall you could you could remember that as a viewer like oh he mentioned something hmm so mm-hmm. i thought that was needed yeah interestingly enough uh this is a scene from the book that was cut from the 1995 and they kind of emma thompson in her script tries to give us a little bit of this in that scene with the horses in the stables in the 95 yes where she says like where he's like uh, have you ever been to uh, Plymouth? And she goes, Plymouth? Oh, no. That whole scene. And <laughs> they try to accomplish all that happens in this visit, which takes a long time in yeah. this adaptation through that scene. Uh, it shortchanges it a little bit, but I understand why it's done. <laughs> yeah. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. 
The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Yes. So... We cut to dinner and we have this conversation where Marianne is like, you don't really need money to be happy. Like, what what is wealth? And Eleanor's like, well, wealth is wealth's important, too. And Marianne's like, have we not been happy here? And we as poor as the gypsies. And Eleanor is like, I think we'd be a little happier if we had a little more money. And they're kind of like joking. And they turn to Edward and they're like, what do you think? And he gets stressed. He's like, uh, well, I think that money can solve some problems for others it's completely useless and they are like staring at him like what <laughs> like why are you being so intense right now and then he just like broodingly looks away and yeah. like, gets very quiet yeah and he puts his hand in front of his face in this kind of contemplative way and that's when mrs dashwood is like oh I like your ring. Is that your sister's hair? Oh my god. How can you not take the ring off, Edward? Like I don't I don't I don't understand. I've got like Hermione Granger's voice in my head going, "What an idiot." <laughs> <laughs> it's also like a hulking ring, too. It's like half his finger. What is it with these people in pinky rings? I guess it's not in this pinky. Oh, I don't know, but let's just be real about the whole Victorian like locks of hair jewelry that was all made I find it all very fascinating <laughs> Molly had a full meltdown when we were reading the book because of the amount of hair exchanged in the book well they didn't have much in those days right? that's Just, true I'm teasing <laughs> but the thing is the, that Willoughby the way that when he took her hair he smelled it and like kissed it oh. I was just like that's so weird oh the whole hair taking scene with Willoughby and Mariana I was like this is just awkward like I understand what you're trying to do the cinematography to make it all romantic and cute but it's really awkward the way he like sneakily like slightly like pulls the scissors from his pocket I'm like just don't just don't <laughs> and then he he turns to Margaret who is there in the room while this like quasi-sexual thing is happening and just goes shh yeah it's all it's all so gross it's all so gross I think about a third of my notes are things like Willoughby is so skeezy I can't with Willoughby and Marianne I get douche chills I like douche chills as a phrase <laughs> it's a good phrase yeah for sure but you know who's not a douche ish well Edward they they really they downed his doucheism for the film adaptations because they need you to like him uh unless I just like really I don't know I think and you just over blew his doucheism in the book yeah I don't know because with Edward I was like I want to sympathize with you dude but like 
You really done fucked up. You <laughs> really done fucked up. He is in a pickle, as we've said before. And like this scene really shows that. Um, I want to say I skated over when Marianne tells Eleanor that she has no soul because she thinks that they need money to be happy. And Eleanor says, I might not, but I flatter myself. I have a little sense. It's in the title. Which is in the title. But yes, Eddie is, I can't sympathize with him that much, but in this one, when later on, and we'll get to this, but when he and Eleanor are like finally talking about their feelings a little bit, she says, I would not have thought so well of you if you had acted differently because she like really respects his honor and like, or not his honor, but his like, he respects his word. His honor. Yeah. And I will say that that scene was really important too, because she, when she does confront him, because, you know, she's very much like, you didn't make me any promises. Like there was assumptions, but you did not blatantly give me a promise. So like, am I hurt? Yes. But like, you didn't actually promise me anything. It was just implied. I feel like there's also another angle in this adaptation, which is Dan Stevens. Like, yes, Dan Stevens, you just, you don't, you almost don't care. You're just like, yeah, whatever. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Can you look at me with, with those eyes again? Um, yeah, that's the great. piercing blue eyes. Yeah. <sighs> and there's just, he really has so much charisma and like has this kind of genuine, like, something to him um in in this role that i mean like yeah i would forgive any assumptions as well well and he really got the best genes in that family because let me tell you his brother and sister <laughs> <mm-mm>. <laughs> I, well i think fanny's hot personally but the woman who plays fanny is hot i'm, I'm not sure why she married john dash yeah, it's so funny because for how snooty she is, it's like, then why'd you marry that guy? Yeah. You know, you're real snooty for someone who married into well, the family. For his monies? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. It's the economics of dating in Jane Austen. Fair. So speaking of the Dan Stevens angle, though, we have arrived at what might be my favorite scene. And I think this is the scene that people like were te- like telling me about on the Instagram when I was talking about how hot maybe um maybe it was Mr. Darcy or something in the water I don't know but someone was like wait till you get to Dan Stevens chopping wood (laughs) (laughs) I was like yeah it's the female gaze for sure yeah that scene also strangely reminded me of the new beauty and the beast when he's like the beast and like I think he gets wet on the like you know, the, the rooftop. Um, but it somehow was like very much like, Oh, I see that this young Dan Stevens, but I see the older Dan Stevens as a, <laughs> as a, you know, beast. It worked for me either way. Yeah. But- and I was seeing him as, um, the Russian in Eurovision song contest story of fire <laughs> saga as he's like, doing his <gasps> Oh dance. my gosh. I didn't even put that together, but that he's literally my favorite character in that movie because he's so and like when he does the dance and like the sexiness that happens of love yeah i love it oh i love him so much mike's take on this scene was very specifically i must chop wood sexily in the rain to distract myself from how much i want to bang you (laughs) he needs to relieve his feelings yeah he said relieve his feelings and then he like chops the wood so he's chopping wood in the rain and his like white flouncy shirt and then he like looks up and Eleanor is just standing there watching him with her mouth hanging open it's so funny and she's standing in the rain with her scarf over her head and she's like you don't have to do that and he was like oh I I like this kind of work and you have very little help here and then she says we manage and he says yes but if only and she says what is it and he says nothing that I can speak of and it's 
Uh, and then he chops the wood again. <laughs> Very hot. <laughs> oh, it's my favorite. It's so good. Then he leaves, and that night, Marianne asks Eleanor if the hair in his ring was, in fact, hers. And she said, it did look like my hair, but he never asked me for a lock of it. What I have to say is that her hair is not at all the same color as Lucy Steele's hair. No. No. Lucy's hair looks like Fanny's hair. It was a great lie. Yeah. I Was she lying? I thought she, because she, like, smiled afterwards. So I felt like she had, like, kind of tricked herself into thinking like maybe somehow it could be mine. Oh, yeah. You're totally right. I was saying Edward's lie was a good one, that it was Fanny's hair. Oh. It was very believable. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but how did Eleanor think that it was her hair is what I'm saying because like she definitely does think it. Yeah, but it's like very many shades away from her hair. Very many. I don't know. As someone who's never given a lock of hair to anybody, I really don't know how we understand these things. Yeah. The rest of us who have all given locks of hair to people, we're trying to figure this out. If they could comment on it, that would be great. I'm just imagining Molly's girlfriend's facial expression if she just presented her with a lock of her hair. I know what my husband's reaction would be because like for a horse person, like it's very common. Like if you have like a horse that's special to you who dies, like they have like people who like make charms and things out of like the tail hair because it's like really strong and stuff. And my husband's like, that's really morbid. Why do you have so why do you have a horse hair bracelet around? And I'm like, because it's for Danny, who just was the sweetest boy around. And he's like, that's weird. I was like, okay, good to know. So if I gave him a lock of my hair, he'd be like, the F is this. That would be really <laughs> funny, though. That would be a fun, like, April Fool's Day that would thing. be. <laughs> <laughs> be like, I know you like my horse hair bracelet so much. I got you one for me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm the sweetest girl. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she does think it's her hair. They are lying there talking about how they think Edward still loves her. But Eleanor's like, but he didn't say anything. And Marianne's like, well, why did he come here if not to propose to you? And Eleanor's like, I don't know. And then they just lie there for a little bit and are sad. And then the next day, John Middleton arrives and brings the Palmers over. Now, no one will ever be Hugh Laurie as Mr. Palmer. <laughs> so this Mr. Palmer to me was kind of a, a nothing character. But I did like that when Mrs. Jennings said that Charlotte was pregnant, Mr. Palmer went, Ugh. yes, <laughs> that, that moment made me made me like remember Hugh Laurie. I was like, yes. oh, yeah, Hugh. And da, 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 da. Yeah, but it was it was still a good moment for that actor as well. Yes, it was a good moment. Um, Hugh Laurie is just so handsome. But Hugh Laurie does that type of character very well, too. So well. Yeah. How did this become a Hugh Laurie stand podcast? It's just all. It's It's very simple. You watch the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility and suddenly your life becomes about what Hugh Laurie does in that film for like fully 10 minutes total. (laughs) Yes. So John says that they must all come to Barton for dinner because they're expecting their nieces, the Miss Steele's leader. And I wanted to point out that neither of the main adaptations that we've seen have done this the way that it was done in the book, which is at least the way that I read it and understood it was that Mrs. Jennings was just like out and about on the town. And Lucy Steele was like, oh my gosh, like we're related, like found her and they like bumped into each other and they invited them over. And then they ended up staying for a long time. Um, That was how I understood that it happened in the book. Now that has never made sense to me. And there are a lot of things that never made sense in the book, like them having 
lunch at Brandon's friend's house instead of Delaford. Like all of the things that were weird in the book, they've kind of just fixed in the movies. Um, this being one of them. <laughs> Are there two Mrs. Steeles in the or Miss Steeles in the set in the '95 and the book? There are two Miss Steeles in the book and the 2008. They kill Anne in the '95. Okay, because I was like, I don't feel like I remember there being two. I just remember Lucy Steele. No, um, we'll get there. But Lucy Steele is like the ultimate villain of this book in a lot of ways, in a kind of cool way. Yeah. Um, even possibly more so than Willoughby and. It is interesting because the 95 actually does dumb her down a little bit and sweeten her up a little bit just so she can be stupid enough to tell Fanny about Edward. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Whereas in the book and in this adaptation, she it's Anne who does the telling, although this adaptation could have pushed her to be even meaner. She was meaner, but I didn't see Lucy as mean. I like I almost got the like flippity gibbet like so in love like not being mean to tell it like just more worried I just need to confine it in someone like I'm worried like she was very much like uh like a she evoked more sympathy like I didn't see any evil like I didn't see any evil vibes from her so then like when the twist ending happens I was like huh (laughs) I'm so confused Yeah, I felt like she wasn't an evil mastermind or like a real mean girl, you know, which is where how I would describe, you know, that type of character today where she's like trying to get into the other girl's head and like, you know, uh, kind of just a lot of uh, passive aggressiveness um, where I felt like this this version of Lucy Steele was kind like a little bit more, like you said, uh, of an airhead, but who maybe saw some competition and kind of just wanted to gently push them out of the way and saw that, oh, this person isn't going to resist that much once I just tell them something. And then that was kind of it. I don't know. Yeah, that's it's super interesting because the books Lucy Steele is such an evil mastermind. The 95's Lucy Steele is a weird combination of the two with her like evil looks and like really kind of mean girl vibes. This Lucy Steele, they really played into her at least showing that she's in love with Edward and like really trying to guard her secret. So she doesn't show so much as like if you know what's coming, you know that she's being kind of like she's like a little viper in the grass. Or whatever, <laughs> viper in like, my bosom, you might say. <laughs> yes, a viper in my bosom, as as one might say. But like but she really doesn't show any of that to the audience or to Eleanor. Like she does seem really innocent about it. And she seems really hurt when Mrs. Ferrers then later on when we, when we'll get there, when she like is like, you aren't welcome here anymore. It's so interesting because I just am so used to them playing up her evilness. Um, But you're so right that in this one, it really does almost seem like, she doesn't have any ulterior motives. Yeah, I did not get ulterior motives from her. I was like really shocked with how everything worked out in the end. This is slightly a tangent, but it's it's relevant. So I'll I'll say it. Um, Lucy Steele, I've yet to see Lucy Steele who's as vicious as she is in the books. Mm-hmm. And it's very like explicit in the books that she is actually trying to torture Eleanor mm. in this time period and uh, eliminate her as competition, keep her close to keep her away from Edward yeah. because she sees the threat of a woman who's from a little bit higher birth than she is and has a little bit more money than she does to her whole scheme to get Edward. 
And that like her main trick of the trade is like exceeding flattery to blind everyone around her to her low class status. She's actually a very brilliant tactician in the books. And I think that generally in the story, they try to go for the twist ending with Robert over um, anything else. Yeah, you see hints of that, I think, in the 95, but you don't even really get any hints of that here. She's a lot flatter, which I think is as a little bit of a disservice to the character and to the plot, because I think that it adds so much more interest. Now, I, I don't love like, you know, women against women kind of plots in general, but I, I think that they're also important and necessary. And when they're done right and they show how hurtful and how awful that that can be, I think that that's also an important story to tell. Yeah, and I think it also, it really is the piece of Jane Austen that kind of gets pushed to the side gently in a lot of adaptations, mm. which is the class narrative. And yeah. Lucy Steele is ultimately just a woman of a very low birth who is out for blood and money for her for her own marriage. I mean, good on her, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, that's how she's going to uplift herself in the world. It's the only way. Right. I mean, we love Lucy Steele on this podcast. Let's we make we love, we, we find Lucy Steele to harm our main heroine, our girl Eleanor, quite a bit. But we also respect her game. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, from the 95 adaptation, like, I remember being like, I'm so glad that things worked out for her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because, like, <laughs> I, you know, like, yeah, she was kind of a bitch. But, like, you know, like, I see the same thing where it's like, you know, women have so little at this time period. And marriage is, like, all they're groomed for, all they're told their whole lives. And, like, good for her for getting it. I think you can probably sneak in an economics of dating in Jane Austen sting if you want one. We have a sound effect. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of the Steels, we meet them. And I will say that Anne is everything that I had ever hoped she would be. I like when they open on that scene and it's just like her face and she's like, so do you have any bows? We don't have any good bows. Like there's a couple, but like I really don't like them when they're really gross. But when they're <laughs> handsome, oh, my God. I'm like this chick, man. I was like, this is great. And her face is like ecstatic, like while yeah. she's talking about it. And her eyes are huge. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love her so much. And she's just the perfect counterpart to Lucy, who's like, okay. Um, so this scene is a pivotal moment for them. I mean, they just were introduced. But when Sir John is like, yeah, Eleanor does have someone and he was just here, but I can't tell you any more than that his name starts with an F. And then Mrs. Jennings goes, Ferrers. Like <laughs> everyone hears her. And then Anne is like, oh, we know a Mr. Ferrers. We see him quite often. We know him very well. And then Lucy is immediately like, Anne, what are you talking about? We, we don't know him that well. And <laughs> And, and then Anne is like, oh, I always say the wrong thing, <laughs> which was one of my favorite lines. Great foreshadowing. <laughs> yes. Then Lucy is like, yes, you do always say the wrong thing. And she turns to Eleanor. And this is like an immediate she's she hears that Eleanor and Edward are like a thing, which she already had inklings of, I'm sure. But she hears that and she goes, Eleanor, would you go for a walk with me? And they like go outside. And she immediately jumps into the question, do you know Mrs. Ferrers? Now, question for Becca, who has read the book more times than any of us, I think. Did, did this conversation happen a lot later in the book? No, this is when it happened. It happens right away? Like, they meet them, but it's, like, within, like, the first few, like, 
meetings. It's very early on. Okay. It seemed fast to me to be like, oh, uh, by the way, I'm going to marry him. Well, I mean, now that we know she's like conniving and like staking her claim, you know, like it's funny now that I have that information, it makes how she like immediately takes Eleanor for a walk and is like, oh, so like, oh, you know, this family, like, oh, you know, Edward, interesting. Like, it kind of makes a little bit more sense why it happened that way. But again, like to me, because I didn't get that villain vibe from her or even that like inkling that there was something more going on. It was more just like, to me, it seemed like a girl who just was like so excited to have like another girl her age who she could like tell this secret to. <laughs> mm, that is really interesting to hear how that feels coming from someone who doesn't know because yeah, knowing who Lucy Steele is, I was like, here she goes. She's on her Lucy Steele bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's very, um, it's a very tactical move on her part to neutralize a real threat. I mean, that's, it felt that way to me, even in this adaptation. I think it just doesn't feel as backed up afterwards. You know, like you were like, totally. you know, if you think back on it, you're like, well, why did she swoop in so fast? But I guess she, she knew she was kind of confirmed her her suspicions were confirmed and so she felt threatened and so she was like well I'm going to swoop in and see what happens yeah so this is where she tells her that she and Edward are engaged and Eleanor's eyes get huge obviously <laughs> so big and red rimmed and she's like Edward Ferris and she's like yes yes and she asks if the engagement is long standing Lucy tells her that it's been five years. And I noticed in this moment, and I can't fully place either her or Anne's accents because um, in the book they're written very Cockney, but, uh, and I don't know the difference between all the different British accents, but oh, Lucy, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. And Lucy to me is giving like huge Ivana Lynch vibes, like um, Luna Lovegood, a little Irish, and like the way that she talks. And she's like, oh, yes, you know, like it's floaty. Mm -hmm. I think. One thing that's really brilliant that they do very lightly in this is that Anne has a full accent mm -hmm. and Lucy slips into it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. she's trying to hide her low class. Mm. Very clever. Yeah. Yeah. That is very clever. Andrew Davies with those subtle details. We love him. At the end of the conversation, she tells Eleanor that she has Edward's picture and Edward has a lock of her hair set in a ring and we zoom in on Eleanor's face and she's like oh my god and Lucy's like did you notice it and Eleanor's like yeah I did and then Lucy asks if she can keep the secret and Eleanor says one of my favorite lines from the book which is I never sought your confidence Miss Steele but your secret is safe with me which is like I fucking hate you but yeah I'm not gonna break your break your word yeah that was kind of a frustrating moment for me when I'm just like damn it Eleanor like you're so you know, you're so honorable and you like you, this is who you are. And I know you can't be any other way, but I wish you could be more like Marianne in this moment and be like, how, you know, like just allow your emotions to, to be, but that's not who Eleanor is. It just isn't. The only reason Lucy can torture her is she's pegged her as someone who won't say anything and will be bound by this promise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is why she's such a good match for Edward, Eleanor, I mean, because they are both really bound by their promises and mm -hmm. they're going to be 
and their honor and their word. But will they actually live happily ever after or will they just not have a conversation with each other? (laughs) Sometimes I wonder, you know, like they'll just be like, oh, yes, the pigeon tonight sounds delicious. And they both hate pigeon. You know what I mean? Like, I I just don't know. I I have faith that by the end of this story, Eleanor has learned to process her feelings a little better. Yes. No, I I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I liked that in this adaptation, they really got to have a conversation about their feelings before he proposed to her like they got to actually talk about it which Mm -hmm. we'll get to when we get to that but later that night Marianne is like what was that long conversation with Lucy Steele about and Eleanor says oh nothing of consequence she was telling me her hopes and dreams for the future and Eleanor (laughs) was like oh yes very uninteresting yeah savage phenomenal (laughs) yeah sassy Eleanor is actually something that came out a lot in the book that I feel like neither adaptation like really well, actually, I think the 1995 didn't really delve into at all. But this one gave a little bit more of that with like her constant raised eyebrows and just like being like a little bit sassy. Her wide-eyedness. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> did you really just say that to me? Yeah. Later, though, she finds a little cave on the seaside to brood in. And <laughs> this is like the start of her having feelings. But she really needs to learn to have them in front of people. Uh. Poor Eleanor. I get it, Eleanor. I am also someone who is a big bottler of feelings. I wonder if it's an older child thing because mm. I had a younger sister and I was told that like, can't get mad at her, can't express her anger towards her, like blah, blah, blah. And so I just learned to repress all the feelings until they could not be repressed anymore. And then I would explode. <laughs> and I have taken a lot of work to get better at that. <laughs> it is absolutely an oldest child thing. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also the oldest child over here. So <laughs> yeah, I know there's a, we'll, we'll get to it eventually, but the scene between Marianne and Eleanor, like I felt that deep in my bones. Like I was like, yes, I under, I've been here. I get it. <laughs> Ugh. Eleanor and Marianne are amongst the most authentically written sisters in literature. It's fine. It's fine. Any Anybody who has a sister watches those scenes and it's just like, oh, it's me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then they're playing cards at the Middleton residence and Mrs. Jennings invites the girls, namely Eleanor and Marianne, to London. And Lucy like looks up and she's like, what? Like, they're coming to London. And um, Eleanor is like, Mama, I don't know about all this. And <laughs> Mrs. Uh, Dashwood is like, no, you must go to London. It'll be good for you. And I insist. And Marianne is so happy. And Eleanor is so stressed. And Lucy is like looking at them like, mm. at this point, is Lu- Lucy is already planning to go to London, right? She doesn't plan to go because they're going. Oh, no, no. Lucy was coming. It's like... Last minute, Mrs. Jennings is like, oh, we should bring the Dashwood girls. And Lucy's like, no. <laughs> yeah. So then the next scene that we get is them in the carriage to London and Mrs. Jennings snoring and Marianne being really excited to see Willoughby and Eleanor not letting herself get excited to see Edward. And then they arrive in London. And I think that that would be a good point to call this episode a full episode. Kelsey and Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yes. Uh, Thank you, first of all, for having us. Um, If you guys want to check out our podcast, we are Tea and Strumpets. And you can find us wherever you get this podcast, as well as uh, our website is romancepod.com. And we're on the social medias at T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. This has been an absolute delight. And uh, listeners, you'll hear them both again on our next episode covering the next part of the same episode of the 2008 Sense of Sensibility. So until next time, stay proper. And find a man like Dan Stevens to chop wood for you angstily in the rain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just chop some wood. Chop some wood. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.